You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where Hornhead can't catch his breath because Bullseye's back on the street, Electra's still running around New York, and now the Kingpin shows up. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. This is the internet radio show all about Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. I am still J. David Weeder, and as always, you can call me Dave. This week we're still reading the Frank Miller run of Daredevil, which continues to just snowball into awesomeness. But first, I had a bit of a meeting of the board of executives of this show, which of course is me and me. Myself and I were not invited, they were voted out, it was really awkward. But, you know, the show has been going for six months, and I realized I should take another look at it. Just kind of keep that as a regular thing where I look and I'm, you know, I ask myself what works, what doesn't work, how can it be streamlined, how can I make it better? And I found that there are some refinements to be made. Now, this isn't a upheaval, this isn't changing really much of anything. It's a tweak, a refinement. It's not painting a car completely, it's putting a new hood ornament on. So now the normal ebb and flow of the show is a preamble. I come in, I just shoot the breeze... And then we go to a promo. Normally when we come back from the, the promo, I'm getting ready to cover the book. So I give you a little bit of context, a little bit of color commentary before we jump into it whole hog. And of course, you know, I talk about the cover and then I get down to the credits and the issue itself. And then at the end of the show, I normally do emails. Now I want to kind of streamline. I'm going to use that word quite a bit. I want to whittle that down a little bit, down to the core, down to what makes this show good. What elements are good about the show and I like to do. And more importantly, how do I keep this show coming out regularly without it becoming a big burden and stopping, you know, the fun aspect of the show? So I kind of looked at it. I moved some things around. And what will happen going forward, beginning with this episode, is I'm going to come in with the preamble. But I'm going to include some of that context in the co uh, commentary I was talking about, talk about the cover before we go to a promo. Mainly because I felt like the preamble didn't have a lot of meat to it. It was very short, and then I'm at a promo break already, and I felt like I didn't earn that. I didn't do anything with my preamble time. And then after the promo, we just dive directly into the issue itself. So, context, cover, promo, issue itself, just as you've always known it. And that will be our regular episodes. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you are right. Dave, where's the emails? Emails, to me, are an important aspect of the show. They're an important aspect of any show, because that means that somebody has taken the time not only to just listen to the show, but to think through what I've said, to respond, to sit down and type, whether it's 50 words or 5,000 words. And I want to give that full attention, but I also want to keep the show going in a rate that I can just pop out episodes. So should I get sick again? You know, I have episodes in the can. I can afford to do that, or I can take a vacation. So what I'm going to do is introduce a basically a one-off monthly episode. It won't have the regular episode numbering. But about once a month, normally on the last day of the month is what I'm aiming for, I'm going to do an episode that's all email, all mailbag. And I'm going to be calling that episode simply Devil's Advocate, you know, after the letter column. This allows me to have full attention on the comic and then full attention on the email, depending on which episode I'm working on. I don't have to shift gears because to pull back the curtain, normally they're recorded separately. 
and you can hear little variations in the sound and sort of different moods to me, depending on my energy level. And it keeps these episodes just coming out at an, and keeping them at a fairly consistent length as far as the regular week-to-week episodes. Um, one of the other things is I've removed comments from the website, from daredevilpodcast.com, and that kind of ties into the email situation. There was a huge spam influx, and we're talking biblical plague of locust influx. Anytime I would log in and get rid of some of the spam sitting there, it would just come... As soon as I logged out, there was about 10 more. I mean, it was ridiculous. And that spammed up the email inbox, which kind of jammed up me doing emails for the show. So they kind of stacked up a little on me. So I have removed comments just because I cannot stop that influx. So I do apologize if you were somebody who were who was look, wanting to comment on the podcast uh, episodes at daredevilpodcast.com. But unfortunately, I, at this time, they are disabled. But with that downer note, we'll be doing a new episode here, a new episode every week. Devil's Advocate at the end of the month. But I believe it's time to get down to doing what I do here and jumping into this new, slightly tweaked format. And what I do is talk about an issue of Daredevil. And this issue, this week's issue, it's another kick to the crotch of awesomeness. And I'm really not sure that made sense. But so far, since Miller has taken over as writer, we have met Elektra. We had an intense standoff with Bullseye. And now this stew that's being built here gets meatier as we add the man who will menace Daredevil for decades to come. The Kingpin. Now, before I go whole hog into the issue itself, I have a few random thoughts that kind of plagued me and kind of ended up uh, resolving themselves through this issue. The thoughts revolve around this single question. Do we, as a fandom, give Miller too much credit, specifically in the Daredevil realm? Because think about this. We credit Miller with making Daredevil a darker, grittier character, which is kind of being disproven a little bit with the issues we've covered. But Roger McKenzie had already done that or was beginning that. McKenzie brought us Josie's Bar. He brought us Turk, Eric Slaughter. I mean, McKenzie came from a horror background and we started seeing some darker tones to the stories. Very definitively darker. Now, I will say this. McKenzie deserves some of the credit, but Miller's art played into that. So the tone definitely changed with McKenzie so much that when the hard-boiled writing style of Miller came in, there we didn't see a huge shift. It wasn't a night and day difference. It's not Batman going from Adam West to The Dark Knight Returns. It, it was more of an organic transition, and it has to be noted that it wasn't a planned transition to go over to Miller. I mean, McKenzie was originally slated to be on the book longer, and by all reports, take it with a grain of salt, but by all reports, McKenzie was abruptly fired. Now, this isn't to take away from Miller, but more to make sure we are looking at this objectively, for accuracy, for context. Now, Miller, I feel, is the bullet that took the book to its eventual destination. However, to give credit where it's due, McKinsey aimed and fired the gun. Now, what Miller has done so far is amp up the book with his art and make each issue a mini-event in itself, and he did that in a bigger way when he was a writer. I mean, we had that great edition with Electric, giving us what would be our first look at Matt's formative years since the origin. So it's very much adding to that tapestry. And then a high-octane, intense standoff with Bullseye. Unlike any we've seen before, it's a wholly organic reboot of a character into something way more deadly. And you know what? People were noticing. With Miller coming on the book, the declining sales noticeably took an upswing and kept going when Miller took over as the writer. So, McKenzie may have been the writer when those sales began to rise. But, Miller was the big draw. His art was distinctive and becoming more so. And Jansen, Klaus Jansen, more than anything, 
even though we don't see the full effect or we don't process the full effect, Jansen aided Miller's effectiveness on the page tenfold. So Miller was the reason that the book was becoming a solid seller. He was the reason for the change in publishing schedule that we're going to see next week. I say that to say this, Miller may be credited with some creations that aren't really his, but nobody will be able to deny the innovation that he brought to those characters. He molded them. Mackenzie may have supplied the clay, but definitely Miller was a sculptor on those. But I definitely wanted to give a little bit of credit to Roger McKenzie before we move too far away from his issues. Again, just random thoughts. They make for, you know, I think they make for good context, though. Because Miller brings us another mini-event with this. Issue 170, which is cover dated May 1981. Taking a look at the cover, Daredevil is held in the clutches of a giant, shadowy version of the Kingpin who reaches over a building for the man without fear as crooks stand armed and in shock. The text on the building tells us the kingpin must die. Now, the first thing I thought and still think when I look at it, every time I look at it, is this is hugely influenced by Will Eisner because it's very animated. It's very distinctive. Eisner is one of the two biggest influential artists in the medium ever. The other being Jack Kirby. And I don't want to take away from the Steve Ditko's of the world, the contemporaries of these two. But Eisner began to push things in a completely new and completely original direction and some of his techniques are still used today the way he laid out a page the way that the title uh, dress or the credits were ingrained in the art itself becoming part of the story in an odd way plus i mean his art and the definition to his characters were phenomenal for those that don't know shame on you but will eisner was the creator of the spirit now he had been working as a professional studio with his partner for a while when somebody came along and said hey we want you to do this regular feature in this circular that's going to be inserted into these newspapers. That circular would then be syndicated across multiple papers. And it was a big section, and it was called eventually just the spirit section because the spirit was on the first page. The spirit was actually Denny Colt, a detective believed to be dead who actually lived beyond that. Using the guise of his supposed death, Denny fought crime as the spirit, whose costume was simply a blue suit and fedora and a blue mask. The spirit caught on like wildfire. And it's something where the character is still fascinating today, kind of like The Shadow or Doc Savage. Just somebody who just captivated the world, and Eisner's art was a huge part of that. I also mentioned Jack Kirby, and I think he's influential not just for his unique style, for his bold way of handling characters, but also for the fact that he innovated himself. The Jack Kirby who did, say, Captain America Comics number one, is not the same Jack Kirby who drew Galactus and Fantastic Four. He evolved, and he evolved in very definitive ways and developed his own distinctive style. But again, like Eisner, his layouts were phenomenal. His thought process, his out-of-the-box way of putting something on paper that really hadn't been conceived before was really just riveting to other artists, and that's why they call him the king. But as for the cover, very much a very spirit-like cover. And, you know, we have some scratchy shadow effects. We're kind of in the more familiar Miller and definitely kind of a throwback. It really, you know, it's odd, but it feels like it has a Fleischer Superman cartoon feel with the way the shadows kind of hang over it, the way the characters are posed. And, you know, if you want to show the powerful presence of a villain, this cover nails it. Not only is Daredevil in the clutches of the Kingpin, his size shows that, well, he's kind of got the whole city in his clutches because he's that ubiquitous. He's that much in control of New York. My only big question is, because, I mean, it's a very clear cover. Kingpin's here. 
He's big, he's in charge, he's going to play Daredevil, he's a villain that is worthy. But what are the goons doing? We have a lot of different uh, thugs, goons, what have you, on the rooftops, and they don't seem to be really doing anything. They don't serve a purpose. Maybe some perspective? I'm not sure, but this cover really nails it. I love this cover a lot. It feels very classic, but just a marvelous cover, and the, the colors just pop off of this thing. But now we're ready to jump into the book. So after this promo for Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, I'm coming back to tell you all about Daredevil 170, The Kingpin Must Die. As far as comic characters go, he's done it all. Created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby during their height on the Fantastic Four. Revamped a few years later and given his own series by Roy Thomas and Gil Kane, in which he died and came back, like all good comic book characters, to save his planet. Several years later, he was taken over by Jim Starlin for some truly mind-bending cosmic adventures, which ended with his own death. Again. Fourteen years later, he was brought back in one of the first major intercompany crossovers to save the Marvel Universe from one of its worst threats ever. He is one of the first characters you associate with Jim Starlin in Marvel Cosmic. I am, of course, talking about Adam Warlock, and after all that, he now has his own podcast. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, is a brand new podcast which will be covering the life and times of Adam Warlock. Join me twice a month as we start at the beginning of his life in Fantastic Four 66, as he emerges from his cocoon and begins a long journey that will include Thor, the High Evolutionary, Pip Patrol, Gamora, Thanos, the Infinity Gauntlet, Spider-Man, the Avengers, the Magus, and more. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, will be available on the 1st and 16th of each month. It can be found on iTunes or downloaded directly at resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. No spaces. Starting on February 1st. Not bad for a guy originally named after a pronoun, is it? back to cover daredevil number 170 the title of the story was the kingpin must die well who didn't see that coming it's right on the cover right it was written and penciled by frank miller inked by klaus jansen lettered by joseph rosen and colored by glennis ween if you're wanting to read this in reprint form it is reprinted in daredevil gang war trade paperback daredevil visionaries frank miller volume 2 trade paperback Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen Omnibus, and Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited Subscription Service. And we begin with Daredevil racing across an abandoned stretch of elevated highway when an old man challenges the man without fear to a foot race. Well, the man can't match Daredevil's speed or Daredevil's ability to run up the support beams of the bridge and fire a grappling hook from his billy club. But, you know, having lost the race, the man takes some solace in the fact that people like Daredevil seem to be up to the task of defending the rough city of New York. A short time later, at Josie's bar, and yes, get your drinks ready. Have them ready. But Daredevil creeps up on Turk, who is quietly having a drink. Turk panics and runs across the bar, and I want to be clear on what I'm saying here. I'm talking about the actual bar, not just the establishment. And then Turk throws himself out the window. Now stop what you're doing. 
Raise your glass with me. All at once. One, two, three, drink. Ah. Okay. Turk manages to carjack a taxi outside the bar and takes off. Daredevil pursues and overtakes the cab, swinging down and kicking Turk through the windshield. Through the windshield. But Daredevil has heard tell of this major criminal movement, and Turk spills his guts because that's what Turk does. There's a contract out. It's a big multi-million dollar contract for the life of one man. That man is Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin. Now, Daredevil is puzzled. Kingpin is retired. He's not even in the city. And Turk corrects the man without fear. Kingpin isn't even in the country. So let's stop there and take a look at the book so far. The book opens with a great splash page. I mean, a great page. It's very colon-esque, with Daredevil bounding across the bridge along the support girder. And you just immediately look at this page and you're happy to see Daredevil. He's bounding. He's almost got a smile on his face. He's more the old school swashbuckling Daredevil. Love this page. Love the fact that the credits are ingrained into a billboard and some trash floating around. Very Eisner-esque. And just the lighting effect really gets me. It's not dark. It's not gritty. I mean, sure, it's nighttime. But you don't feel like the city's completely dirty. Just gorgeous. Absolutely love this page. Are you getting that yet? I mean, if this page were a woman, I would take it out for a nice date. I'd open the car door for it, take it to Red Lobster. I wouldn't even uh, sweat a little when it ordered the most expensive thing on the menu. And then I would take it out dancing, maybe a movie, talk until the dawn about our thoughts, our feelings. That's how much I like this page, okay? But the race itself is actually really fun. I like that Daredevil interacts with his city. He's not Batman. He's not grim. He doesn't just ignore them and make quips at them. He's playful. The people of this city are the people he's protecting, the very heart and soul of what Daredevil does. And sure, Spider-Man will make jokes at them, but Daredevil really feels like he's one of them. It's just a cute scene, but it also has a great shot of Daredevil leaping into the air, cast against this sort of orangish moon. I don't know why it's orange. Maybe it's a lot of smog. But then we're looking straight down at Daredevil as he fishes his billy club out, shoots it, and then swings. And the look on this guy's face is phenomenal. Just a, a bit of wonderment and awe, and I love that. And I like the idea that, you know, the guy's think, saying what we think. New York's a rough town. There's a lot of people, which means a lot of good elements and bad. So it takes a certain kind of person to really designate themselves the protector of even a section of this city. So he kind of says what the reader thinks from time to time. I'm glad there are heroes around, even if they're fictional to show us good things. And then we get to the bar, and Turk <laughs> Turk throws himself out the window. I cannot look at this page without laughing. Daredevil just sits down and says, Hey, Turk, let's talk. And Turk does this weird, wily coyote, spasmic run right out the window. For all the crap that this run gets, or the praise that it gets, however your mileage varies, there's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of fun in this. For example, Turk steals the cab. And as the cab is turning the corner, it's up on two wheels like a cartoon. And Daredevil mentions the muffler. Now this is both good and unnecessary because Daredevil's able to track that cab that Turk carjacks by the sound of the noisy muffler. Now, attention to detail is something that will get my attention every time. So it's nice that we have sort of a justification of how Daredevil tracks it. But, you know, we didn't need it. We could have put that piece together ourselves or put in our own excuse. But sometimes it's nice to not have to no-price something. Now, here's something that bothers me, and I kind of alluded to it in the synopsis. Daredevil kicks Turk through the windshield of the cab. This bothers me because 
Well, windshields are built to withstand a lot of speed, a lot of debris that may hit it. Now, granted, they're not invulnerable, they're not bulletproof, but normally, you know, Daredevil's leg would be pretty much crunched into bits. I mean, it would sound like fruity pebbles when he tries to shake his leg. And there's a part of me that could accept it, except for the way it plays out. So if Daredevil had swung straight into the windshield and kicked Turk, well, not only would that kill Turk, but it would look cool. I would almost understand the idea behind the physics. But we are clearly seeing Daredevil drop straight down and then straight forward. Now, Daredevil dropping straight down is fine. And then the car is also moving, so Daredevil would naturally have to progress forward. The car would basically be hitting Daredevil and Daredevil's leg at a reasonably high speed. So again, Daredevil's leg would be crunched into fruity pebbles. But again, this is another physics question for W. Blaine Dowler on his comic book physics podcast. So we'll follow that up later. The big question, the big course of the meal in this particular section of the comic is where is the kingpin? Now we all know, and I've mentioned this, he's a Spidey villain, but uh, we kind of mentioned how he came about. But where has he been? Why is he retired? The answer to that is Amazing Spider-Man 197. See, Kingpin is married to a woman named Vanessa. Now, we don't know much about Vanessa other than, well, she's Kingpin's wife and she kind of holds him by the weenus, if you will. But Vanessa gave the Kingpin an ultimatum, mainly because of the whole, well, Richard, the Kingpin's son, tried to take over his empire that causes family strife. Pretty much the same thing that happened in 1987 at the Weeder family Thanksgiving. But after that, she decided to lay down the law and said, okay, you're either done with this life of crime or you're done with me. You get one or the other, and it has to be done by midnight on this date. So Kingpin set about wrapping up his affairs, specifically trying to kill Spider-Man. And really, the thing about the story is, Kingpin ran it right up to the minute. To the minute. Literally to the minute. And at that point, he was ready to crush Spider-Man. But the clock struck midnight, so Kingpin had to stop, and then disappeared pretty much from the books. Disappeared to parts unknown. Until we get to this next section of the story. At a mansion in Japan, Wilson Fisk engages in some martial arts sparring with multiple attackers. And Fisk owns them easily. However, one of the attackers, after everything is done, offhandedly mentions a little bit that Fisk may have sort of been the kingpin of crime, which sets the big guy off. And he exerts some force on the minion, putting him in a submission hold. Fisk's wife, Vanessa, shows up to put a stop to the bullying, and she has Mr. Harrison in tow. Mr. Harrison has arrived from the U.S. Attorney General's office to negotiate with Fisk for some files that Fisk has. Now, these aren't just any files. I mean, we're not talking about recipes here. The files have full and damning evidence that Fisk kept on his lieutenants, insurance against mutiny, and it would basically send the underworld of crime upstate if these were to fall in the law enforcement's hands. Vanessa recognizes that with this slippery situation, they're going to need some legal representation. So she immediately flies to New York to hire Nelson and Murdoch. And I mean immediately. Apparently she teleports. Now Matt and Foggy are surprised by the violent arrival of Vanessa at their office, heralded by her bodyguard kicking the door in and then securing the place. Once that settles down, things heat up again as the office comes under fire from an unseen assailant. Matt is able to slip out and change to Daredevil to meet the foe. The assailant is using this high-tech gun attached to his hand like a cybernetic hand, which has a flamethrower which he puts on. And that flamethrower does jack all against Daredevil. However, when Daredevil accidentally knocks the man off the roof, the flamethrower does the guy in because he reaches for the billy club line with the flamethrower still lit. 
So it burns the line, it cuts the line, and with no line, the would-be assailant falls to his death. And when Matt returns to the office, Detective Manilis is there to tell him the bad news. Vanessa Fisk has been kidnapped. Now, we have the sparring scene, because lest we forget, do not forget that the Kingpin is a wall of muscle. There's not an ounce of fat on that man's body, despite appearances. Now, I've said this before. I'll say it again just because we have the proper context. Kingpin kind of fits into my opposite and to the left theory on arch villains. They're going to be the opposite of the hero with a little bit of a tweak because he's just not what he appears like Matt. Matt appears to be a helpless blind man. And I say helpless because that's just the appearance. Not that blind people are helpless. Please take my words in context. Likewise, Fisk looks to be a overweight, helpless man as well. Neither one of these are the case. Kind of like in real life. Not everything is black and white. And then we see the sparring and Kingpin, I mean, he just crushes these people in 17 seconds. Let me point that out. 17 seconds. And we're looking at at least five attackers, all in karate geese. And they're just owned. I mean, owned. And of course, we have Kingpin not liking the idea of being called the Kingpin and I love the irony that Kingpin is insisting that he's a peaceful man while putting somebody in a painful submission hold. So Kingpin has been kind of keeping his head down, just leading a life. Now that he's thought he's out, they're going to pull him back in because of these files, these horrible files that he's kept. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But the thing I want to point out is for as much power as Kingpin wielded, not just in his physical strength, but in his previous position as Kingpin of crime, we see him drop everything when Vanessa comes in. I mean, it's like a child getting caught smoking or something. It's oddly adorable. We don't, again, know much about Vanessa. She's been around. She was uh, from a wealthy family. But think about the kingpin that we've known so far. And really, we only have Man Without Fear as a barometer. But we also have some Spider-Man where he's just a wicked douche. Relentless, cunning, not afraid to cut somebody or betray somebody. And yet, this horrible man... And I'm going to point out Larks here, this man who raised Larks to be almost like his son and created a basic killing machine. This man loves Vanessa. And I mean, this is an unrequited Lloyd Dobler Diane Court affair. And it's, it's both adorable and kind of striking that there is this part of the kingpin that is, I don't want to say pure, because I think that's just a bit too much credit to Wilson Fisk, but something where he does feel that this human being is worthy of his time and he will never betray her. He might bend the truth, but let's be honest, he quit being the kingpin for her. That says something about this relationship and this relationship and what is about to come with the kidnapping really forms this emotional backdrop to create the kingpin as a new character, as a more vindictive character, because, well, I'm going to get to that. But you remove Vanessa from the equation, and we only have the bad part. Vanessa is darn near Fisk's only connection to his inner humanity. So we immediately see the weakness for the Kingpin. And I'm not saying love is a weakness, but for the Kingpin and his, his original aims, his original role as a villain, Vanessa is sort of the stumbling block to that villainy. And it's displayed admirably and clearly right here. Now, of course, even in retirement, the Kingpin is not going to give up everything. 
because he still has organized crime by the tail. Kingpin is immediately, in two pages, forced to be reckoned with physically and clearly evil and manipulative and more than a little paranoid. I mean, this is some of the most effective communication of a character I've seen in a long time because we are literally dealing with two pages and we get all of this, uh, three pages, and it's all right on the table. So we have an understanding, even if we are not Spider-Man fans, of who this guy is and why he's going to be such a force to be reckoned with for Daredevil. However, I will say this. This family, Vanessa's family, and, and of course Fisk himself, they're not without means. They are Oprah rich. Well, you know what? I'm going to say this. Oprah might be Fisk rich. And they could have, I don't know how many lawyers on staff on retainer. Surely they have representation, but when it comes down to it, they go to a storefront law firm. That's who they turn to. Now, at first, this seemed really, really strange. However, it makes perfect sense because the storefront law firm doesn't have anything to prove. They're not integrated into, you know, the same criminal empire structure that would have created this scenario. They're not only free agents, but, well, they've proven themselves to be good men. And that's without Daredevil on the table. And I will say, when I go to seek legal representation, I want to make sure I make a good impression I mean, first impressions count, so I want to make sure it counts. So I'm going to kick in the door of every legal practice I go to. Before Vanessa arrives, I do want to point out real quick that some subplots are subtly seeded. Um, we haven't completely lost those with some of the new stuff that's coming in. For example, Foggy seems to be sleeping at the office overnight, despite, despite recently being married. He seems a little downtrodden. Matt notices that. And we also see Melvin Potter and his trial progressing a little bit on the television. So there's a deposition. Both of these are going to play back into the story, as well as being pulled from what has come before. Again, Miller's using the blocks that he has. He's just not putting him full force on the table yet. Now, the assailant himself is Bruno. We only know him as Bruno. And given his fate in this story, we're only ever going to know him as Bruno. Again, he has interchangeable hands which immediately made me think of a cyborg superpowers figure, but he has a gun hand, he has that flamethrower hand, they're interchangeable. He also has a curling iron hand and a hair crimper hand. Now the hand that he's talking about, this new weaponry, this high-tech stuff, he's bragging about it, makes him, in his mind, invincible, but the very high-tech weapons he praises not only do nothing against Daredevil's simple prowess and Daredevil's billy club, but there is downfall because he reaches for the line reflexively, forgetting he's got a flamethrower there, hate when that happens. Now, it's a horrible death, and luckily it's not grotesque, but you kind of get a clear idea that, yeah, that, that's going to hurt. So there's not bone fragments and things or sound effects, thankfully, but it's a pretty horrible death, and I couldn't help but thinking this wouldn't have happened if he'd only used the blow dryer hand. But Bruno's kind of a, well, he's a distraction, isn't he? All of this is a clever ruse to kidnap Vanessa. Matt and Foggy are both looked at a little bit oddly with Manalus because why are they talking to Vanessa? They're kind of asking the same question I did. Storefront law firm with Vanessa Fisk? Come on, dude. But the weird thing is that the whole focus is on Vanessa being kidnapped. And the fact that she's gone and the panic and, oh no, what about the dead guy on the street, people? The dead guy with the technologically advanced hands. I know he's not a threat, but dude, a dude just died. And we're worried about the kidnap victim. And why is that? Because that means Wilson Fisk is going to get a mad on. A short while later, Bullseye is released from jail, cleared of all charges, thanks to putting the blame on his tumor. Daredevil tails Bullseye as he gets into a limo and goes to a skyscraper office building. 
In a darkened office, Bullseye makes a deal with Vanessa's kidnappers to kill the Kingpin when he inevitably arrives in New York. All for the sum of $10 million. But Daredevil, who has been eavesdropping, declares that he's going to put a stop to Bullseye. And the villain responds by, well, chucking throwing stars at the man without fear. It's kind of what he does. Daredevil dodges those, but is helpless to stop Bullseye from throwing him out the window. Now, Daredevil tries to use his billy club, and Bullseye shoots the line. So Daredevil grabs a flag, draped off a flagpole. And unfortunately, that rips. But Daredevil is able to use the flag to snag the head of a gargoyle, and the gargoyle's head breaks off. So Daredevil plummets as a garbage truck drives below, and the man without fear can only hope it's soft enough. After a drop of a few more stories, Daredevil lands on the back of the garbage truck or in it more appropriately, and lays completely motionless. Meanwhile, at a farm on Staten Island, the underworld awaits the arrival of the kingpin thanks to a squealing stool pigeon. Sure enough, the plane arrives, but when the criminal stormtroopers try to board it, it explodes, killing them. A second plane arrives moments later, and Wilson Fisk himself steps out, savoring his ruse. The pigeon talked and told them this because he was supposed to. It's all a part of the plan. And as the kingpin lights a cigarette, he declares that all of his enemies will die. One by one. To be continued. So, Bullseye walks free, and we kind of knew he had to. And it kind of sucks given all the decisions Matt made. And the tumor is to blame. Now, I don't know if this could squeak by today unless you have like a Johnny Cochran type. But, the point is, Matt let the system do its work. He let Bullseye get a fair trial, a fair shot. And let's be honest, Matt has faith in the system. He, Matt wants the system to work. He wants the justice system to be efficient, honest. He wants it to be just. However, right now, Matt has faith in the system, but not absolute faith, and nor should he. Because if Matt had absolute faith, there wouldn't be a daredevil. Now, the weird thing about this issue, and I'll say this overall, is that time seems to be irrelevant. For example, we go from the Kingpin's mansion where Vanessa's saying I'm going to seek out legal representation to suddenly being at the storefront law firm with no indication that any time has passed. So it looks like she teleported there. She's just instantaneously there 10 minutes later. The normal reader can kind of edge out what happened, but still it's a bit jarring. And again, after the whole kidnapping, we jump to the bullseye scene and it feels almost instantaneous because just a moment before, just a literal panel before, Manilis is talking to Matt Murdock. Next thing we know, Matt's on the street. But one of the things that stood out about this issue, because I can excuse the passage of time, because logically it takes a little bit of time to, pro you know, kind of crunch the data and process it, but it is something I can process and put together. But the good thing that stood out to me, and something that I remembered from this era, that defined it in a weird way for me visually, and that I rediscovered and redefined when reading the omnibus once again, was the use of color and the use of shadow and, well, blinds. That's a weird thing to say, but the lines that the blinds put on darkened rooms from the light outside. And the idea of these sequential lines from the blinds makes me immediately say, oh, that's noir. That immediately makes me think of Sam Spade waxing all philosophical about the world of the detective. That's the immediate thought I have. I mean, it's a smoke-filled room. The blinds are there. Bullseye smoking, which we've seen him do, but it seems like an 80s cop movie all of a sudden. Now, this is where I feel that the grit starts to come in, because grit to me... Think about the word. I mean, it means you're running something, your hand over something, and it's pushing back. It's rough to the touch. The smoke-filled room doesn't feel like the ornate office of the Kingpin in the John Romita Spider-Man series. It feels like 
an empty room. It's an empty, save for one desk. I mean, the desk is tiny. They're in a huge room. And again, we're using rectangles. Now, what is the space between the blinds? More rectangles. It creates a claustrophobic feel. The smoke-filled room also adds to that. It's a good effect, and I dig it a lot. And then, I feel like doing a Chris Hansen when Daredevil jumps into the room and says, Well, Bullseye, I'm not going to let you do that. What, what did you think was going to happen here? Really? You don't come out and exposit what you're about to do. You don't monologue. You just hit Bullseye, because if you start to talk, Bullseye has the half a second to actually hit you with something. And he does. And in this case, it's Shuriken, which is a new weapon added to Bullseye's, well, already noticeable arsenal. Everything's a weapon for him, but we haven't seen him use Shuriken before. It's sharper. It's deadlier. It has a flow to it. They move faster. And that immediately refines Bullseye again within. It's not that we're seeing the pawn turnover and the character is being completely reinvented. Miller's using what's already there. He's just sharpening that a little bit, pun intended. And it's not that Bullseye was campy before and not deadly, but now he's twice as relentless. He has more weapons at his disposal and the visual of a shuriken versus, say, a knife. A lot more dynamic because you can throw multiple. You have these flowing objects on the page. They're harder for Daredevil to dodge because, well, there's more of them. But the scene where Bullseye gets kicked out the window, which, come on, we didn't think it was going to be that easy. I mean, he's going to stop Bullseye, but not immediately. The scene where Daredevil gets knocked out the window is... It's so Buster Keaton. It's one of my favorite Daredevil scenes in this run. And granted, it's not campy. It's not... It's not Keystone Cops. You know, I say Buster Keaton, but that's the immediate thought. It's actually a human character struggling with this human, you know, situation where he's falling and everything he has is failing. It's not over the top. It's definitely a humbling moment. Shoots the line, grabs the flagpole. It's ridiculous, and I love it. It's also, I should say, grounded in what we're seeing here. And it kind of keeps the threat on the table with it defined without having to confront it yet. And at the end of the issue, Kingpin enters the story proper and immediately owns it. He owns this whole issue retroactively with this one scene. He set up this gambit to put information out there of when he's going to quote-unquote arrive and then sends a decoy. Not only have we been shown in subtle yet clear ways what the Kingpin is all about, now we see that turned up to 11. He's shrewd, he's ruthless, and he's one step ahead of everybody, Daredevil and the criminals. And right now he's a random element in that. He's not part of the crime family. He's not a hero by any means. He's a threat to both. And that's not a position anybody wants to be in with the Wilson Fisk that we know about to breathe down their necks. And then we have the final shot of Kingpin lighting a cigarette. This scene begins with a more traditional Ramita-style Fisk. He's well lit, he's well defined, and then the lighter strikes, and suddenly darkness takes over. This came about because, and this is directly from Miller's mouth, John Byrne challenged Miller to this. He said, light him. Make him a Frank Miller character. And Miller realized that's a great way to really turn the corner for Fisk. I mean, Fisk is already an evil dude, but we need to kick that up to 11 or 12. And here, it hits about 20. Because this isn't going to be the same Fisk. This isn't going to be the same Kingpin that wanted to kill Spider-Man with his Electro Cane. This is a Fisk that's not f***ing around. You've basically taken his heart. You've basically got his soul in a box somewhere in this city... And this relentless evil man with no limits on what he will do 
is after you. I'm sorry, but that is a scary, scary villain. So not only do we have that physical prowess, we have this malice, and we have, well, a critically thinking villain. And this three-panel sequence perfectly shows that we're going to the dark side of Wilson Fisk, and it's not a place that you necessarily want to see. And I started the episode talking about what can we give Miller credit for, or do we give him too much credit? And I have to say, with this issue, I think I can confidently say he earns 100% of the credit for giving us a sweeping, nearly epic ongoing tale that's going to build towards Daredevil stories up to today. But that's Daredevil number 170. Next week, Matt Murdock goes to work for Wilson Fisk. Vanessa's in grave danger, Bullseye's still deadly, and Daredevil gets flushed away. That's in seven days when we pick up the story in Daredevil number 171. Until then, as always, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger's is near. Daredevil fight for what is right. Daredevil fight for you tonight. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Oh, wow.